Charlie Johnson, and this is Untangled, a podcast about technology, people, and power. Okay, I recently had the thought, is the internet out of content? Have I reached the end of the internet? Luckily, I didn't have to contemplate that question for too long before a new season of Love on the Spectrum came out. Thank you, Netflix. The point is, the internet isn't all bad, and you can preempt that same anxious thought by watching Love on the Spectrum, which delivers yet again, and by subscribing to Untangled on Apple or Spotify. This month, I wrote about pseudonymity, harassment, and what they reveal about our relationship to technology in my newsletter. In it, I argue that pseudonymity is not a neutral cover from the world, that whether it protects your safety or your power depends on your position in society. The essay centers on a high-stakes story by senior technology reporter at BuzzFeed News, Katie Natopoulos, that revealed the real identities of the founders of the Board Ape Yacht Club NFT collection. I'm thrilled to host Katie on the podcast. She is a trenchant and hilarious writer with a nuanced understanding of internet culture. In our conversation, we discuss why reporting on crypto is different from reporting on other tech issues, how Katie figured out the real identities of the founders, the pluses and minuses of pseudonymity, the harassment she experienced after publishing the story, and how she responded. Between the two of us, we also pronounce pseudonymity maybe eight or 10 different ways. Count along while you listen. It'll be a fun game. Thank you so much to Katie for coming on the show and to you for showing up and learning alongside me. As always, if you like the podcast, please review it, rate it, and share it. And now, my interview with Katie Natopoulos. Katie Natopoulos, welcome to Untangled. Thank you for having me. What's your story? How did you come to write about tech for BuzzFeed? I started at BuzzFeed in 2012 when it was like, there was news, but I was on the sort of team of people early on that were doing lists. And at the time we weren't even doing quizzes, but like I always say like lists and quizzes, because that's what people know BuzzFeed for now. But this actually predated quizzes. I was doing sort of like listy internet culture stuff. I came to BuzzFeed because I had a totally different career for my entire 20s. I worked in like e-commerce marketing, but I sort of was doing this as, you know, in the 2010s, the early teens, um, I was doing blogs and tumblers on the side. And so that was sort of how my side job, uh, and, and there was never really a job because I never got paid for this stuff. I did like a couple freelance <laughs> things. Uh, I ended up at BuzzFeed based on sort of these sort of social media, Tumblr, blog kind of things that I had been doing on the side. I just sort of had an interest in tech and internet culture. That was always sort of my area of interest. And sort of more and more, I just sort of ended up shifting over into the tech reporting team. I mean, from following your writing, it seems like you're increasingly interested in crypto. What sparked that interest? Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. My interest came because... It became clear to me some point last year that like, oh, this is the internet culture thing. You know, I think a lot of people who are interested in crypto were first interested as a sort of, you know, a piece of technology that's interesting. You know, blockchain technology is interesting if, if you are a sort of technically minded person. And I was like actively not interested in that. <laughs> I was always like, oh, Bitcoin, I don't want to know about that. <laughs> please like remove the piece of my brain that ever hears about this. But um, 
just more and more, it became clear that like crypto and NFTs were becoming this huge, huge thing within internet culture. And what I found exciting about that, like as a person who covers internet culture is like, it's not that often that there is a whole new beat within internet culture. There's not a, you know, a whole new shift in things. I feel like the, the thing that I would sort of liken this to is like around 2015, 2016, when like the rise of the alt-right and 4chan stuff all of a sudden became, you know, seeping into mainstream internet culture. You know, not to say that, you know, on a, a quality measure that they, you know, or moral that they are equivalent, but um, just in terms of like, wow, there's this new beast. There's this new like huge thing bubbling up that is like totally driven by, you know, organic humans being interested in a thing. It was clearly like the exciting new thing that was going on. What's different about reporting on crypto than big tech or sort of like other internet culture phenomena? I mean, I would say that like the biggest challenge is that, you know, I, it's a little bit complicated, right? <laughs> like there's a little bit of a barrier of entry to figure out what is an NFT. And this is, you know, kind of everyone knows what it is now. Even still, I still find myself at moments where I'm trying to do some reporting and I'm like, I need help. I need to go ask someone who understands like blockchain technology a little bit better than I do. So there are, unlike most internet culture things, there are occasionally things where actually like I hit some sort of technical uh, roadblocks where I do have to sort of ask for help. And, you know, what's nice about working at a newsroom like BuzzFeed News is like we have an entire team of engineers that work on our tech desk and like a lot of them can help out or other or even other reporters in my newsroom um, uh, able to help with that kind of stuff. You know, where it's like internet culture had always, that felt sometimes so easy to think about because you just kind of had to be like steeped in it a little bit. And like a lot of, I think the effective reporting on it was just like living in it constantly and being aware of what's the new little thing bubbling up. It's, you know, sort of keeping your eyes on thing and having also like a sort of memory of the history of this kind of stuff. So you can be like, oh yeah, wait a minute. All of these guys mm -hmm. are all trying to go live on a private island. That reminds me of the time the something awful guys all tried to go live on a private island. Like, <laughs> like there's sort right. of, you know, there are these sort of, uh, you know, long themes that, uh, that work. And, and that kind of reporting is also quite different from like reporting on sort of traditional tech reporting where you're reporting on like the people who work at big companies that often is sourcing and getting interviews with, you know, an executive or finding out about some new product or feature or internal document, because there's in internet culture, there's sort of less sourcing in that traditional sense. You don't have one guy who's just like your source, you know, cause like in every little bubble, there's always, a, it's always a different group of people. Yeah. So all, all three of those things are sort of different, different sort of ways of, of reporting, I think. You wrote a story that identified the pseudonymous founders of Board Ape Yacht Club. Set mm -hmm. the scene a bit. What is Yuga Labs? What is Board Ape Yacht Club? And why do they matter? So Yuga Labs is the corporate entity company name for the company that makes the Board Ape Yacht Club NFT collection. And that is a collection of 10,000 different unique ape cartoons that have different 
clothing and hats and each, you know, some of them are, you know, the traits make them more rare and therefore more valuable. And it became basically the best known NFT collection and sort of most valuable over a pretty quick period of time, probably starting from, I think it launched officially in like April, 2021. And, you know, at at that point, NFTs still were a bit of like a curiosity. It was still a little bit of like, what is an NFT? I was writing an article about NFTs. I had to like explain to the reader, an NFT is a non-fungible token. And what that means is, and now you can just say NFT and people know what that is, right? A series of things happened over the fall of 2021 and the winter where like a bunch of high profile celebrities and collectors all of a sudden were all buying these apes. Sort of famously, Jimmy Fallon had one, Paris Hilton, Steph Curry, Gwyneth Paltrow uh, has one. Anyways, a bunch of celebrities all bought these. And I think that really like made a difference. And and one thing that I had noticed in the the rise in popularity of NFTs is that I, as a tech journalist, was just getting like bombarded in my inbox by PR pitches for, you know, McDonald's is launching an NFT. You know, this celebrity has bought an NFT and it's such like an old fashioned way of doing things. (laughs) Whereas like the idea of what the promise of NFTs and Web3 is, it's new, it's organic, we can all be anonymous, it's decentralized. And this is like very much centralized power where it's like celebrities, publicity. What happens when celebrities do stuff, it becomes sort of like in the news and that's why people like having celebrities do stuff. So they had just become really, really popular. They became more and more well-known. Prices of them had gone up and up and up to the point where it was like, you know, a single ape was costing $200,000, $400,000. There were a couple sort of like high profile ones that I think were way above that, you know. And then there were like a couple other sort of funny incidents where someone had, and this happens all the time in NFTs now, is that like people get fished or hacked and they accidentally give their wallet credentials over to some bad actor who then like zaps out all their apes. And there was this one guy who had lost his bored apes because he got fished and tweeted something like, all my apes are gone. And everyone kind of laughed. I'm sorry to that guy. And it probably was very unfortunate for him. Take me back to the beginning of the story. What drew you to it? So there had been sort of floating around theory that the apes and Yuga Labs was this secretly Nazi racist organization that was covertly imbuing all these racist and Nazi images within the apes and within their sort of corporate logos. And that the pseudonymous founders, that their names were like anagrams for, you know, racist slang. And so that was sort of what caught my eyes. Like, huh, I wonder if that's true. (laughs) That would certainly be interesting. This is often how reporters get stories is they see someone saying something online. Um, In this case, there was an artist named Ryder Rips who is a pretty well-known digital artist and I've known for a long time. And he was someone who really believed this and was sort of talking a lot about it. And I was like, hmm, you know, did a little bit of looking around. It was kind of clear, like a bunch of the sort of pieces of evidence were sort of like coincidences. You know, the anagram thing, like, I don't know, maybe that's 
on purpose. Maybe it's not, you know, the one of the images kind of looks like another image that's on like a Nazi flag. Is that on purpose or is it not? I don't know. I've, I've been around long enough to see it both ways. I will never be surprised to find out that someone from the internet is secretly a Nazi, (laughs) you know, like, but also sometimes, you know, a cigar is just a cigar. Um, And so it's really sort of hard to tell. And that usually the way that you would be able to tell is if you kind of knew who the person behind it was. If you are the founders of this uh, incredibly lucrative, popular thing, isn't it weird that people don't know whether you're a racist or not? (laughs) They were at a point where they were becoming just, you know, the biggest NFT organization, um, the most lucrative, had the biggest cultural penetration. And sort of during the time that I was sort of looking at this and reporting on it, sort of a couple things happened that even raised that higher and higher. So um, the company, Yuga Labs, uh, raised money from Andreessen Horowitz at, at a sort of four to five billion dollar valuation. You know, that takes this company up to another level uh, in terms of like, how important is this to the world to how newsworthy are the people behind it? And then there was this other like really weird incident where Paris Hilton was a guest on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. And they both own board apes and they both took out pictures of their board apes and were, you know, sort of giggling about their board apes and how much they liked their each other's. People sort of were a little bit mocked it because it was, it was truly like a really surreal television moment. And also it was a little like squiggly of like, is Jimmy Fallon secretly and like, was he violating NBC's rules by promoting essentially his investment on his show? But what that did is like the Tonight Show is huge, right? That meant that people, boomers, you know, tucked into bed at night on a Wednesday night are gonna like know what an NFT and what a board ape is. That, that just brings it to another level of cultural, uh, you know, cultural penetration in addition to this like huge financial uh, investment. And it just sort of became clear that like these people are at a level of newsworthiness where like it, it seems just against all norms of society that we don't know who the people are running it. So how did you go about finding their real identities? What was that process like? So we were pretty, we were able to find their real names of the two sort of main founders. There's technically four founders, um, pretty much just by going through uh, simple LexisNexis record searches. Um, you know, we found, uh, looked up the incorporation records for Yuga Labs, the company name, and that led us to um, an address, which led us to a name, which led us to another address, which led us to a name and a company, you know, and, and eventually on down to where we found the names of these two people. Um, but, you know, that trail wasn't 100% concrete until we uh, went ahead and, you know, I called up the, the two guys based on their phone numbers uh, from these uh, record searches. Um, and I said, you know, hello, I'm Katie from BuzzFeed and I'm writing a story about how you're the founder of Board Ape Yacht Club and they hung up and then the CEO of the company confirmed the names to me. The, the actual record searches were like, 
not like you, you needed a little bit more than a simple Google search, but it, it was, it wasn't like impossible. And in fact, um, another outlet had the LA times had been working on the exact same story and, uh, had found using the same record trail. I imagine the, the same way had found the same two names. And I think we beat them by publishing only a few hours earlier. I want to get to the blowback, but first why do you think folks in crypto care so much about pseudonymity? Like what about crypto culture lends itself to pseudonymity? So this was something that actually I had had a lot of uh, discussion with, with Nicole Bunis, who's the, the public facing CEO of Yuga Labs. And I think it's like a really interesting and really smart and thoughtful person. And her sort of thought on it is like this Web3 thing is a new frontier and it is different than we're used to. And it is possible to do all these cool transactions in a way that you're pseudonymous and there's tons of upsides to that. Um, and, and she's right. There are like tons of upsides to being pseudonymous. It's fun. It's cool. You can be, who, you know, like you can be whoever you want and like and not like, not in a sinister or like sleazy way, like in a kind of just like creative, like play with your identity kind of way. I talked to some people who were like in the sort of smaller than Anderson Horowitz, but like within the sort of VC world that deal with crypto um, NFT people. And one thing that they thought is great is like, Hey, you know what, when we have a founder come to us and they're pseudonymous, like we don't have that baggage of like, are they a straight, white, able-bodied male? We're not going to be putting those kind of judgments on people. So it actually like, it opens up the world of venture capital in a sort of more equal way to, to people who have been traditionally shut out of these things, because you're not, you know, you're not judging them on what they look like, on what their real identity is, you know, did you go to an Ivy League school or not? That kind of thing. Are you young? Are you old? That's great. Like I see huge benefits to that too. I I do think that there's like wonderful things in the world about being able to like, you know, go about your sort of online life having a, a different persona. Like, and that's not brand new either, right? Like people have been doing that in different ways for a long time. And you know, I think the benefits there are like clear. There's also like clear <laughs> drawbacks to that. As far as pseudonymous people within the crypto space, having, you know, using pseudonymity to sort of bury a past that is less than savory for people doing business with them, that has also definitely happened. Uh, one of my colleagues at BuzzFeed News wrote a story about someone who had been highly involved in a, uh, I, th I think it was kind of like a competitor to OpenSea, like a different kind of NFT type exchange. It turned out that they were like a well-known person who had been within the like world of Warcraft streaming world, like known to be a pedophile, um, uh, you know, and they had been working uh, in this other capacity under a pseudonym and eventually, you know, people figured out who it was and the person was fired and, you know, that's kind of like a worst case scenario, right? Someone is using it because they're some really, really awful kind of person. There is another case of like someone who is involved in a different kind of crypto uh, business, some sort of uh, DeFi organization who 
it became revealed had, was actually involved in a couple other things that were total scams and at one point had been like actually arrested for like securities fraud. It is a way for people who don't want their real identity to be known because their real identity would mean that you would not want to do business with them. People who are proponents of using the pseudonymity in, in crypto were like, well, but you know, the blockchain means that everyone's accountable because you can see all their transactions on the blockchain. It's transparent. And it's like, well, you can see all of their like on-chain activity. You can't see if, you know, they right. also, you know, in their personal life, they kick their dog or whatever. I, I mean, I think that, you know, there's just in general, a little bit of a culture too of, you know, pseudonymity and, and <laughs> so right. to, it's impossible pseudonymity to <laughs> and anonymity in crypto sort of going back all the way to like, I think people are sort of inspired by Satoshi and like, who is still uh, pseudonymous, the inventor of Bitcoin. And, um, you know, I think that that kind of has created a world where that is the way that people think is fine to be around. And I think like for most people, that's fine. I think that if you are running like an incredibly huge business, maybe that the math changes. Right. Okay, so let's get to the blowback. Mm -hmm. So after the piece was published, you were accused of quote, doxing the board ape yacht club founders. You were sent, I saw on Twitter, harassing and threatening messages. Talk a little bit about the response to the piece. The response was split between people who were in the crypto world and people who are not. And people who are not um, were all like, great. Like, yeah, like, cool. <laughs> this is This is exactly how journalism is done. These were newsworthy people and revealing their names is absolutely, completely normal journalism. And then people in the crypto world were upset by that. I think that like the instinct to be upset about revealing someone's name, you know, a, with against their wishes is like a good impulse, like doxing in the sort of like true definition of like revealing someone's personal harassment in a way that is inciting like threats that's bad. I'm glad that people think that's bad. And I'm glad that this culture doesn't want to accept that people's impulse to be like, I would prefer more privacy over less privacy is a good impulse. I, th I think that this was a case where like, you know, journalism doesn't have like a secret set of rules. Um, and like, it shouldn't. And this was a case, however, where like, saying like, this is a straightforward, the rules of journalism would absolutely say, go ahead and reveal the names of these powerful, influential people. Um, that may not like be the first thing that like the average person on the street is like, yeah, sure. I, I understand that. Absolutely. I get that. And so I think that like, there is an onus on me as the writer to explain that a little bit within the story to say, you know, here's why I am doing this. Here's why this is important to reveal their names. And here's why I'm doing it. There is a logic to it. It's not sort of like craven doxing, you know, to do it just for the thrill. And, you know, I, I did I try my best to do that in this story. When you were sent, you know, threatening or harassing messages, you often used humor as a tactic to mm -hmm. sort of call out the absurdity of it all. Mm -hmm. Was that intentional? Like, have you found humor to be a useful response to harassment online? Yeah. I mean, I think it, I think it is right. Like 
this isn't like the the first time I'd ever been like harassed online because right. again, I had written an article about. It. So like, you know, this is my first rodeo. Th- that's just true of any journalist today, right? Like if you've been writing articles on the internet, you're going to have dealt with someone yelling, like with lots of people yelling at you over something. And like the worst is when it's over something you like never expected. <laughs> mm. um, this one, I like, I, I knew that it would, you know, that some people would be upset. You know, there there's a bunch of ways that, journalists deal with that you know my newsroom is pretty good about having like we have someone who's sort of like a security person who even before the story was published or maybe just right after you know sort of worked with me to make sure that like anything that you know she was sort of going through twitter to make sure that anything that seemed like a little too over the line was being like flagged directly to someone at twitter or had worked with me. Um, we have a um, a service called Delete Me that like deletes all your sort of personal information from data brokers where it might have your name, your address, like family members and relatives and that kind of stuff. So making sure that that kind of stuff had been scraped as much as it can because it like it always comes back. But um, you know, sort of that kind of preventative measures of like how you keep journalists safe from online mobs. It's like not as simple as like don't feed the trolls. But like, in general, you know, I just sort of avoided um, interacting with too much of this stuff. In general, my sort of like rule of thumb with any sort of like thing like that is like, if someone is disagreeing with me in a good faith way, like I'll engage with them, I think usually. And I think, and if it's a bad faith way, I won't. And this was also because it was a little bit of a fraught story. I think it was a little bit more of like, I don't think I should, um, I should just not engage on any, you know, let the story stand for itself. I don't need to like plead my case on Twitter um, any more than I have. And then (laughs) this may seem counterintuitive, but I have open DMs on my Twitter account because, you know, I want people to be able to reach out to me. It's not like I get like 20 DMs a day. It's like a couple of week. I want people to be able to be talk to me and give me tips and people who I don't follow back to, you know, send me messages and stuff. And I think in a weird way, like, and I got like tons and tons of DMs being like very mm-hmm. upset about this. And in a weird way, I do think that giving people that DM option, like weirdly, it was like a little steam valve that they could kind of just mm-hmm. like shout into the little hole, <laughs> like, you know, that like in a weird way right. that maybe kind of like diffuse some of the stuff that was actually going on, on the actual timeline. The other sort of funny thing is at some point, there's just so much of it that you just don't like you don't even read it all, right? If someone's mad at me about an article and I get like three tweets about it, I'll be like, oh no, we're like, oh boy. I'm like, oh, these three people disagree <laughs> with me. Oh, it's gonna get, it's gonna eat me up. But when it's like 300, I'm like, I can't even read this. So yeah, humor is a, a fun way of defusing it. But like, I don't wanna make it seem like harassing journalists is like a fine jokey thing. It doesn't bother me that much because I have something wrong with me <laughs> is the truth. I'm used to it. That's not the case for everyone. Not everyone is as dead inside as I am and shouldn't be. <laughs> I hope you are not. You know, I don't want it to make it seem like I think it was funny. haha, that like people were kind of harassing me or whatever. I will say that honestly, like there was a lot of blowback, but bit of it was frankly I disagree with you you know it wasn't all like fuck you bitch <laughs> some of it was but there were there were good faith disagreements and I think that like when people are voicing their disapproval of something even if it's slightly strongly worded like 
that's okay by me. And also when I like know that I'm in the right, you know, that's, that's sort of, that's key. So there's this argument that if we make people use their real identities online, we'll mm-hmm. reduce harassment, that every platform will all of a sudden have the culture of LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think of that argument? Like, we kind of know that's not true, right? Like, if you've ever been on Facebook, it's full of harassment and everyone has their real names, right? And plenty of the people harassing me on Twitter over this were using their real name. I do think that there's a version of pseudonymity where actually, like, people are quite nice because of it. Um, I, I do think that that does exist a lot, sort of, in the NFT community, where, like, all these people are hanging out with their bored ape avatars and they're like, good morning, (laughs) good morning. Like we're all going to make it. And they're like having a great time. And it's because they're pseudonymous. Real names versus pseudonyms versus anonymous is not the metric where like harassment on the internet is going to be solved. All right. I've been ending the pod on the same question, which is if you could give one piece of advice to your teenage self, either about life or navigating the internet, what would it be and why? So I was like a teenager in the 90s, like before the internet. I mean, I had um, AOL or whatever. Pick a really good username that you're going to want to like stick with for a lot of places. Like that's kind of fun. That would be my (laughs) good advice. I feel like I've never found my real good user handle. And now I'm like sort of stuck with having to use my real name for stuff. I mean, I feel like this led to exactly our conversation. Sometimes when I sign up for a new website and I don't want to use my real name, I'm like, oh, what should I use? Like when it's like type your username, I'm like, oh, what, what? I need like, the, <laughs> I want like a funny, cool username. My really embarrassing one for some reason I like, I had like my AOL aim handle was like Chiquita Banana, but I misspelled Chiquita somehow, like <laughs> in like a really like messed up way. And then I was really embarrassed when I realized that I had done that. Um, so yeah, so pick a really good username that, that you like, and then don't use it to sign up for anything embarrassing that someone's going to find you on later. And then where can folks find you online? I, uh, I'm on Twitter at KDNatopolis, and you can read my articles on BuzzFeed News. Katie, thanks so much for joining us on Untangled. Thank you for having me.